Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. This is Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Hey, good morning. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint Church. We have a team of pastors and a, and a preaching team, and we're excited to keep walking through uh, the book of Philippians this summer together. Please, if you do uh, already have your Bible open, keep it open to Philippians 3. You're going to need to look at the text to be able to see where we're, we're headed this morning as we study together. You know, it was uh, a special Sunday for my wife and I last Sunday. Last Sunday marked, uh, to the day, our 11th wedding anniversary. It was last Sunday. And so, yeah, 11 years. Some of you are like, oh, you, that's cute, that's cute. <laughs> and some of you are going, 11 years, wow, yeah. It was 11 years ago, uh, that's a marker for us in our marriage, it's also a marker for us at LifePoint. Four days after that ceremony, we drove a way too large moving truck to become an intern here at LifePoint Church, so we've been here 11 years now. So uh, I've got a little picture up here. Believe it or not, uh, when I asked my wife to marry me, I was wearing tight leggings, <laughs> short shorts, like running shorts, this kind of marathon jersey thing, and Asics Nimbus gel running shoes. I was wearing running shoes. And there's a, a blurry picture from a friend who was hiding behind a bush. It's the only picture we could capture of the moment. Uh, we started dating in high school, and I had it in my mind that we wouldn't get married if we got married until after college, so there was a long journey there. <laughs> Miss Endured, thank you for enduring. And uh, throughout our dating relationship, I would regularly talk about dating and married life as a marathon, as a young guy. I'd use that illustration over and over and over, so much so that it became a theme in our relationship, that it's a marathon. And relationships are like that, aren't they? They have a long trajectory, if you stick with it. There are ups and downs. There's good moments of strengths. There's moments where you get a side cramp. Uh, there's a destination. You're trying to run the course. Sometimes you get off track. It's kind of a metaphor 
for a relationship. And I grew up in a, a home that was split and I saw how difficult marriage can be. So I went into marriage eyes wide open. I thought, this will be a marathon if I commit myself to you. And so I had this marathon theme and we got engaged on this bridge that was on a marathon route. We had all these mile markers to remember our relationship and I proposed in tights and running shoes. Yeah. You know, life is a lot like a marathon too, even for those of us who aren't married. That's a common metaphor even today. Life's like a marathon. And in fact, that's the kind of illustration that Paul uses in our text that you heard just read. And I'll show us that in a minute here. But I want to ask, if, if your life is compared to a marathon today, right now, how's your race going? How's your race going? We're, we're mid-August. Some of you have already started school. Summer's over. Bad news. Um, some of you are right at the start of a race. You're, you're heading off to CSU. You're starting freshman orientation, and you're looking at the start of the start line, and you're tying on your running shoes. You're looking with hope and optimism of what lies ahead. Some of you are running and you're at mile 17. You've got a side cramp and you've been throwing up. <laughs> you're exhausted, you're sitting on the curb and, and frankly, maybe today you're feeling just weary, <laughs> exhausted of the race of life. Some of us have been getting off course for a while, maybe even drifting off course and we're not sure where we're running anymore. Some of you maybe even are coming here today to church and you're saying, I don't even really know about this whole Christianity thing or where life is going and what it's really about, but I'm exploring what's the finish line, what's the course. Thank you for being here. I wanna invite you to explore. How's your race? How's your race today? It's a powerful metaphor for the human life, this life that we live in. It's a metaphor that Paul picks up in this section of scripture, and I have to ask the question, why? Why, Paul? Why did he pick that metaphor? We see it there, why? Why here in, in chapter three? And, and to understand this, we need to back up and see the literary context. We gotta, be honest to what the author's trying to do and see his flow of thought as he's come to this place in chapter three. So if we back up just a little bit, and if you've been traveling with us through the study guide, you can recall that earlier in chapter three, Paul has been saying that no matter what your background or pedigree or resume, our goodness, if you wanna be a good person, you wanna have righteousness, says the only way we can have that is by God's grace through faith. And Paul has just lifted himself up as he's saying if anybody can be a, the goodest good person there can be on the good earth, it's me, Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, zealous. And Paul says I count all of that as rubbish compared to the righteousness that I can have, which is God's holiness, his righteousness, his goodness that I get, not by my work and effort, but by grace. That's a good doctrine. We should emphasize that. We are justified by grace through faith. 
But Paul now makes a turn, and he's concerned that he is so emphasized that we are justified by this free gift of grace that there's a danger for the Philippians that he's writing to. The danger is that they think, though Christ has done all the work to give them the righteousness, that then life's work is done. Right? That's the danger. And his purpose right now in using a metaphor for the Christian life as a marathon, as a race with a, a prize at the end, is to bring balance to being fully justified by grace, but he's saying there's still a race to run. See, it's, it's like this. Uh, we've talked about these theological terms, and these are so good. The first time I was exposed to these was in college, and I thought, where was this? Somebody's gotta preach about this in church. And Dale did just a few weeks ago. We've got these terms. We've got the start of the Christian life, which is justification. That's your starting line. It's the moment that you, by grace, your eyes were open to the beauty of Christ, you repented of your old life and you said, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. And in that moment, in an instant, you were justified. It's the start of your race. You're made and declared righteous before God. And then there's a finish line and it's way over here and it's this theological term called glorification. That's the finish line. Not death, by the way. Most people live like the finish line is death. It's not. Not for Christians. The finish line's over here. It's called glorification. And that's the end when we're taken up to be with Christ in the resurrection. But then we've got this space between. This is the marathon course. This is where you're running. How should we characterize the gap between the start line of justification and the finish line of glorification? It's another theological term. We say this is the process of sanctification. And the tension here is that when we, we so emphasize justification, sometimes the unintended consequence of our tr- Christian tradition, especially Western evangelicalism, is that we so emphasize this that we treat then this path from the starting line to the finish line like a, like a gentle, lazy river tubing ride. Don't we? I'm justified. I've got my ticket to heaven in the back pocket and all I need to do is lay back on the inner tube of God's grace and float along the gentle waters all the way till he calls me home. Hopefully I could be sipping a margarita. Just the whole way. And Paul's intent in this section is saying, yes, 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 justified, made righteous right here at the start. But life is not a tubing ride. It's a race. It's a marathon. And there's a prize. That's why, look at the text with me in verse verse 12, right here, verse 12. He's emphatic with this language. Look, I'm justified by grace through faith. I'm declared righteous. And then look at this turn in verse 12. Not, 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 not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. Do you see the author's intent? Do you see what Paul's trying to do? He's saying, yes, this, but you've got a race to run. How should we characterize the Christian life? It's a marathon. 
It's a race, and Paul is so brilliant. He's a great author. He knows whom he's writing to, and he's using language that immediately, for the first recipients of this letter, they would recognize and understand. Consider where he's writing. He's writing to Philippi. This is a Roman colony with lots of military pride, but it's also has incredible amounts of Greek influence. This is the melting pot of Philippi. And so Paul, a great writer, chooses language in a metaphor that matches them. He uses race metaphors and military words that that hits both of these people. Think, I'll give you just a few examples here. Here's some quick ones. Uh, In verse 13b through 14, he uses this word. He says, forgetting what's behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call. This word is, is like, uh, J.B. Brown says it's like reaching out in a race, straining forward. It could be translated stretching out. It's like picturing a racer with his hand and face and feet reaching out for the photo finish across the finish line. This is language borrowed from the Greeks in their Olympic races. And immediately, the original audience would go, I know that picture. I've seen that before. It's the Greek Olympics. Or how about uh, verse one of chapter four? Paul calls the Philippians his joy and crown. The word crown is from the Olympic Games. This is a wreath that's placed on the winner of a race, a race. He's using metaphor language. And then to pick up on the Romans, he sprinkles in a little bit of military language, like verse 16. He says, only let us hold true. The NIV translates that word walk on. It could be translated literally march on. That's a military term. He's saying hold true. He's saying march in line, hold the course. When the bullets are flying, don't move. March on. It's it's beautiful. And we, we miss the subtleties of that because we're not in Philippi in the first century, but he's brilliant in using this metaphor. And he wants to use it to describe the Christian life. So here's the question then. What for Paul is the goal, the finish line of the Christian life and how can we run the race well? And that's what I wanna draw out, just a few principles this morning, of how we can run well. First, what's the goal of the Christian life in the finish line. I would summarize it this way. Here's, here's my language to try and paraphrase and summarize. The goal of the Christian life in the finish line is to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus until the day we're made fully like Jesus in the resurrection. That's it. That's the goal. We, we honor God the Father by becoming every day a little bit more like his son, the perfect image of God. And we continue doing that all the way until the day that Christ brings us up. We're resurrected and we are made fully perfect and sinless like his son, Jesus Christ. Let me, let's see it in the text. Is this principle in the text? Look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, this. And if you're reading it, we got to know what's this? What's the antecedent? What's he referring to? And we get that from the context. We just pop up to verse 11. We can't helicopter into a Bible text. We gotta read in the flow of the author's thought. So look at verse 11. The this he's referring to, what has he not obtained? Verse 11 at the end. That by any means possible, I may 
attain. Grab a hold of what? The resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this for Paul, the finish line of the Christian race. The treat at the end is this, that he would obtain resurrection from the dead. Not just death, not worms, six feet under, raised in Christ. That's the finish line. And then notice his goal. He says, he says not that I've already obtained this, the finish line, or am already perfect, aka the goal of the Christian race. What ways would he become perfect? And he refers back up to verse 10 and 11 again. How would he be perfect? Perfect in verse 10 in knowing Christ, fully knowing him, in power, experiencing the power of his resurrection, made perfect in suffering and being obedient through suffering. Look at the, the word that he uses in verse 10, becoming like him. That's the language I'm trying to use. That's the goal, becoming like Jesus, even in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Folks, a few years ago, we tried to get clear about what's the measure of success for LifePoint Church, and we said it this way. We said, we will be successful not by having a big church, not by having lots of people, not by money, not by buildings. We will be successful when people become more like Jesus. That's it. That's the goal. We created a Venn diagram even. I think I got, yeah, we got a Venn diagram. Come on. And I see this in scripture unintentionally. I didn't pick this thinking this would come up. I see it over and over. It's right there. Paul uses that exact word in verse 11, becoming like him. That's what being perfect is, being more like Jesus. And later he's even gonna say that the, the mature people should think this way. They should think like Jesus. And that's one of our pieces of our Venn diagram. Okay, making connections. That's the measure. That's the finish line. The resurrection. This is uh, the word that I used earlier, glorification. That's the finish line. And the goal of this race in between is that we would be made perfect from one degree to the next. So if this is the goal, how then can we race well? How can we race well? And I want to suggest this morning that the key to winning a foot race is your eyes. I'm convinced of that. The key to winning a foot race isn't your shoes. It isn't those aerodynamic leggings that I was wearing. It's your eyes. It's your eyes. And Paul uses this language, so I want to draw out just three principles of the how your eyes help you win the race. The first principle is this. You want to win the race of the Christian life? You want to race? Keep your eyes on the prize. That's a phrase you've heard before. People say that all the time. Keep your eyes on the prize. Paul says it too. Just uses a little different language. Where does he say this? Look at the text with me. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and notice the direction of his eyes here, and straining forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead? I press on, fixed towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where is his eyes in this moment? 
Paul says, if I'm running the Christian race, I'm not looking back at what lies behind. I will not put my head on a pivot for a moment. My gaze is fixed and I have selected the destination. I'm clear. I know where I'm headed. I love Andy Stanley often says this line. He says, everybody, everybody, everybody in life ends up somewhere. Is that true? Yes. Few people end up there on purpose. Everybody ends up somewhere in life. You're all running a race, whether you intend to or not. Few people end up there on purpose. Paul is one of those few. He has a purpose. He is clear. The goal is fixed. The prize is in front of him and his eyes will not waver. He is running toward that finish line. What's the prize then for Paul? Why run a marathon? Anybody who runs a marathon is crazy. That's not fun. Hey, let's go run for four hours. That sounds like a good time. Why would he run? He's got a prize in front of him. What's the, what's the prize? He says this, he describes it as the upward call. The upward call. Straining forward, I press on for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the sweet moment in the parable in Matthew, I think I've got the reference, 25, Matthew 25. This is the moment that the master says, well done, good and faithful servant, come in. This is the master who's doing the calling. He's the one doing the reaching and obtaining and holding and drawing in. The master says, come on in, well done good and faithful. That's the prize, the moment. Do you believe that's coming? Do you believe that moment really is coming when you die, that you will meet your maker? The problem and tension, I think, in the Christian life is that we fail to run as if there's actually a prize. Feel to run. It's a, this is a race, Paul says. This isn't a stroll. The Christian life is not a sweet stroll through the park. Run and choose. Pain, endurance, run, press with fixed eyes on the reward. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul, another cross-reference, he says, I'm gonna run for the reward. Don't you know that in a race, the runners are running. <laughs> this is really obvious, but we're not living it. Runners run, and they run to receive a prize so that they may obtain it. Does that characterize your Christian life? Are you all out sprinting towards a goal, or are you strolling through life? Paul's eyes are fixed, and he runs for the prize. So I ask you, how's your race? How's your race? One of the common dangers in any Christian life race is not so much maybe that you're just strolling or you get tired, but probably that you're running to the wrong prize. That's a common one. And, and fixing your eyes on a different thing you treasure will make a wreck of your race course. When I was in college for about 10 minutes, I got to ride a friend's motorcycle in a parking lot. It was a lot harder than I thought riding a motorcycle would be. It was really hard. 
And one of the things they said in motorcycle training that's different than a car is that when you're riding a motorcycle, the motorcycle itself will tend to follow wherever your eyes are looking. So if you're cruising down the Poudre River and you saw a herd of elk and you thought, oh, that's cool, look at those elk. Oh my goodness, oh, there, oh, there's a baby. You will naturally start bending towards that direction because where your eyes go, the motorcycle follows. And the same principle's true of the Christian life. Where you fix your gaze as the thing you treasure most, your life will tend to follow. The thing you fix your eyes on and you treasure most, your calendar will tend to follow without you even trying. You'll make time for it. Your wallet will tend to follow. You will buy the thing that you treasure most. You will feed it, don't we? Where's your gaze this morning? You fixed on the prize. If we, if we uh, scroll and gaze and you're just, maybe you're in a home, but you're, you're just scrolling on Zillow for fun. And you're thinking, what could I do? Could I live in that home? Wouldn't that be nice? And you're constantly gazing at that upgrade, you know, that's got the better patio and it comes with the hot tub, right, right. And you're gazing and gazing and gazing and suddenly you're starting to treasure the thing that you're gazing at all the time. And your course gets twisted. And suddenly you're not, racing like Paul is, fixed towards the goal and the prize. What's, what's your treasure? What's your treasure? Paul's eyes are fixed. The first principle he wants us to learn about racing the Christian life is to keep our eyes on the prize. Is Christ your greatest treasure? And is the moment the Father calls you home the sweetest moment you look forward to? But there's another principle he draws out. Not only does he say, keep your eyes on the prize, but he says this, he says, don't look back. Don't look back. We see it in verse 13. I love this, Paul gets to do this. He says, but one thing I do, and then he mentions two things. I think that's pretty funny. One thing I do, these two things. Forgetting what lies behind and stretching out, straining towards the goal. Forgetting what lies behind. That's, that should go on a mug. This is a great verse, isn't it? Yeah, that, and it, like pop culture too, it's like, yeah, that's right, forget what's behind you, just strain forward, finish the race. This could, re- this could preach, this could preach. But then I have to pause and I have to say, well, hold on a second, Paul. What, what do you actually mean by forgetting what lies behind? Do you, do you mean everything? Like my, my whole past, just forget about it. And then you do a little investigating. You say, this is where you gotta open up the whole Bible and you gotta say, Paul, what do you actually mean when you say forget what lies behind? And then you take Paul himself, who in another letter says the exact opposite thing. Let's look at one example. Uh, here's Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verse 11. He says this about the past, about the past. Therefore, remember, and that's an imperative. It's a command. He's talking about how you once were Gentiles, and then he says it again in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, having no hope without God in the world. Having no hope in my past feels like a really good thing to forget. But Paul says, don't forget it. 
Okay, Paul, what do you mean then? So we've got, to, we've got to figure out the principle then. When you say forget what lies behind, and in Ephesians you say I should remember some things, what's the principle? And I even saw this in some of the commentaries. So here's how this study goes. Uh, one scholar said what is Paul referring to when he says forget what lies behind? One scholar said this. Well, what he means is forgetting the bad things of his past. And the media context right up above, you know, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He would try to get them martyred. And can you imagine being the guy who formerly got some Christians killed and now he's on the front of Christianity and say, no, 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 join the club. Really, no, I've changed. I won't kill you anymore. Be with me. Let's go to church together. That would be cause for shame. And so some scholars say that's what he means. Forget the bad stuff of the past and that's what he's referring to. Forget the bad. Other scholars say, no, 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 no. What he means is forget the good. Forget the good, the immediate context is Christ's, uh, is Paul's righteousness. Paul's righteousness, right? Hebrew of Hebrews, he was zealous. According to the law, he was blameless. That would be cause for pride. And so maybe Paul means forget the successful things of your past. Forget about those and strain toward what lies ahead. And then a third guy who I agree with said, maybe it's both, and I think it's both. How, how are we supposed to filter then this principle? When do we forget? What lies behind and when should we remember something from our past? Perhaps this litmus test could help. I think the sense of what Paul is saying is forget what holds you back from moving forward in faith. If there's something from the past that spurs you on like the fact that you are alienated from the family of God and that by grace you've been welcomed in, that's a good thing to remember. Don't forget that. But if there's something from your past, whether bad or good, that's holding you back from maturing in faith, forget about it. Forget about it. So maybe you're here today and you are struggling with shame from your past. You have prayed 700 times for God to forgive you and you walk through life with a limp, it's affecting your race. And today Paul is saying, you need to forget that. Christ's sufficient. Put away shame, receive his forgiveness, and run the race laid out for you. And some of you here today, you had a sweet season. You've got a pedigree. You remember when you were the revivalist. You were on fire for God. You were making a difference in the world and you were coasting right now. You're coasting on yesterday's success. You're even a little puffed up about it. And Paul's saying, forget about that. There's a race and a prize. Whatever bad holds you back, whatever good holds you back, forget it. Don't look back. Fix your eyes forward for the race that's ahead. In, in 1989, in the Tour de France, an American, Greg LeMond, was a severe underdog. He was coming up against the two-time reigning champ. Uh, he's French, so I'll say it with the best French. Laurent Fouillon. And uh, of course, uh, if you're French, I'm sorry, this will be offensive, but Laurent, uh, he was, I'll say he was confident. He was very confident, and that's never, characterized of some French people. Maybe that's not true. But Laurent, okay, he was very confident. 
And by the last stage of the Tour de France, he had built up such a sizable lead that he and all the experts agreed he'd basically already won the Tour de France. He had a 50-second lead with one time trial remaining. Here's an actual quote of this guy the, the night before. Here's the Frenchman, Laurent, the, the night before the race, speaking of this American underdog, Greg. He says, Greg believes he can win. And, and then he goes on to say, but it is impossible, right? You can just taste the arrogance. He says, I'm too strong in the mind and the legs. 50 seconds is too much to make up in such a short distance. 50 seconds. All the experts agreed, at best, the most Greg could make up was one second per kilometer that would make up 24 seconds of time. Only half of what he needed. Even Greg's wife didn't believe that he could do it. The race was over. So Greg tried something that racers had not done before. And if you've seen the Tour de France, you've seen in modern day, they've got the earpieces in, right? And they're talking to their team. They've got the entourage with the cool German Audi behind them and all the other racers, right? He said, I'm gonna do something different for this race. I want no information from my team. I'm taking the radio out. Do not tell me my time splits. I do not care whether I'm doing well or doing poorly. I don't want any information. All I'm going to do is put my head down for one race and I'm going to race as fast every moment as my legs will possibly take me. I'm not looking back. And there's a picture of Greg winning the Tour de France not looking back. This is the picture of the Christian life. It is not a stroll. We're not looking back, wondering about shame, whether we're forgiven or a past success. It's an all out. I don't want anything from the past. I am putting my head forward towards the finish line. Paul says, keep your eyes on the prize and don't look back. This is the Christian life. How's your race? How's your race? But he has one final principle that Greg missed out on, and that's this. Don't just, if, if the key, folks, if the key to winning a foot race is your eyes, don't just keep your eyes on the prize. Don't just not look back, but you need to do this. Here's the, Paul's third principle. Watch those who are running well. Watch those who are running well. He says this in verse 17. This is amazing. Who could say this? Brothers, join in imitating me. This is Paul. Follow my example. Keep your eyes not only on the prize and don't look back, but look at me. Look at my life. And he says, if you can't watch me, keep your eyes, there it is, eyes, on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And I could give you a lots of examples, but Paul uses this command over and over in his letters. Here's one other cross-reference that shows what Paul says. He says it better in this, this other cross-reference. He says in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul's saying, Whatever ways that I'm living like Christ, making progress and becoming like him, follow my example and look for others who are running well. 
If we use the metaphor of a race, if you want to win a race, look for runners. Look for runners, right? You, you don't sign up for a marathon with someone who's never run before. <laughs> Be foolish. And in the Christian life, there are indicators of people. Who in your life do you admire because they are Greg Lamond? Do you have someone in your life right now? Do you have a Greg of the Christian life? You, you watch their life and you go, I don't know what got into them, but they are racing like they've got something to win. Who is that in your life? Paul says, keep your eyes on the prize. Don't look back, but look for those who are running well. Who will you be running with this fall? Maybe you're a college freshman. I am telling you, your first couple weeks of this semester will be incredibly important. It will determine the quality of your college career and perhaps your life, no pressure. And one of the best indicators of that quality will be who you choose to run with. And I, I've been on campus at CSU freshman orientation. I tell you, everyone, they don't care about classes. Nobody's thinking about that. You know what? Everybody's trying to figure out the first week of college semester. Who am I going to run with? That's what everybody wants as a CSU freshman. You're looking for community. It will shape your race. Look for runners. Run with them. Maybe you're starting school, we've got young students, you're heading into a new school. Who will you run with? It will shape and influence. Parents, you're navigating confusing times. You need to look to some examples. You need people in your life who are running, parenting well. Who will be your examples? Paul says, look for those who are doing it well and imitate them. And perhaps today there's an older generation and you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. More, I, I get to say this as a young person. If you have more gray hair than I do, we are watching. Are you an example? I'm pleading, I love that we have an intergenerational church. It means we get to do that a little easier. Are you running well? Is your life, can, could you join Paul for a younger brother or sister and say, imitate me? Do you have the audacity to say that? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're watching. Uh, John Tyson wrote the book, The Intentional Father, and he did something strange with his son. He knew that life would be a lot like a marathon and that life has different seasons. There's a season in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, 50s. And so he set up for his son an interview, like a coffee or a lunch, with people that he found who had run that particular season of life exceptionally well. So his 16-year-old son sat with someone who nailed their college years in their 20s, and he interviewed him. And he also sat down with someone in their 50s who had just become an empty nester, and this 16-year-old asked a 56-year-old, how do you become an empty nester? 
We need examples, all kinds of examples in our body. Who are you looking to? Who are you watching to run well? As I conclude, uh, Paul has one final grounding motivation for all this racing. The marathon's hard. If the key to winning a foot race is your eyes and you need to fix your eyes on the prize that is ahead of you, if you need to not look back at what holds you back, if you need to look to others to run well, you need a grounding motivation underneath all those principles that governs all of them, and it's this. As you run the race, reaching out for Christ, Christ has already obtained you. See it in the text with me. In verse 20, he says, there's some bad examples out there. Don't follow them. They've become enemies of the cross and their end is destruction. But our citizenship is in heaven. Not will be one day in heaven. This is the already but not yet. He says, present tense, you today have a new passport. And it says, citizen of the eternal kingdom of heaven. Before you've run the race, you've got the passport. And he concludes, he's closing in verse 20 what he started in the opening of this section in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? What motivates Paul to press on through shipwrecks and imprisonment and persecution and yes, martyrdom? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Present tense, already. All the tips for running a race don't matter if you don't understand the gospel that while you're stretching out, Christ has already obtained you. He's holding you. Your future is secure. So I conclude with three words that summarize this text well, and it's the title of this sermon, and it's this. When, when we run a marathon race, the Christian life is a race as victors. 41. He's already crowned you. You're his, so now race, run all out the race marked for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to run well in a way that honors you. And in a world of sin, we need your help. So Father, I wanna intercede right now for myself and others who are approaching life not as a race. Uh, maybe there's here, other friends right now, Lord, who have wandered off the path. They're off course. They're not running with anybody right now, and they're not sure where they're running. Father, I pray that you would draw them back, give them a picture this morning of the sweetness of Christ, and help set their eyes and their affection on winning you and the resurrection from the dead. I pray for those who are dealing with shame or pride this morning, and they're looking back on the past, Lord, would you turn their eyes to fix their gaze forward? 
And Father, as we head into the fall, I'm interceding, I'm asking that you would do this. Would you help everyone who calls Life Point home to find runners and run with them, whether it's a life group or somebody having over in their house for dinner or in a college dorm room, Lord, that we would be a community of people who run together for the prize that you've called us. And Jesus, we trust you. We know you're holding us, and we give it to all you. In Christ's name, amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.